Good morning, church. Again, that's Colossians 2, verses 8 through 10. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of the who is the head of all rule and authority. This is Christ's word. You may be seated. All right, thank you, Heather. So good morning again. Pastor Ryan, the lead pastor here at the church is on vacation with his family. Um, and they are up in the Carolinas. Enjoying some cold weather, some snow. Sent me a picture of him in the hot tub when it was 30 degrees outside. And uh, he's enjoying life. So it's important for, for us to get away and be able to find a retreat together. Amen? So um, uh, we are still in this season. Today's our final week of the season of Sabbath. And so if you've been with us, you kind of know what I'm talking about. If you're new here, um, what we did starting in first week of December is we took a little bit of break. We pulled back. We've given all of our volunteers some time off. And uh, so our setup has been a little bit more stripped now. We've been kind of re-imagining um, what it's all going to look like on a Sunday morning. Um, but we've been really pressing into this time of rest. And so we finished that out um, this week and we go into next week um, hitting the new year strong. And uh, for all of you who volunteer um, we are so grateful for what you have done up until now, and uh, we look forward to what God's going to do through you, in you, um, in this new season ahead. In this uh, new year, for, the, for January, we begin a new series. So this is a four-week four series called Controversial Christ, and um, we have hand-selected four what we believe central cultural issues today. Um, now, these are not all cultural issues um, at hand in the moment, but they are what we've selected largely due to our context. Um, and these are the four authority, politics, sexuality, and women. We begin with authority today because we have to address a pretty basic issue. And it is one that begs the question, upon whose authority do we draw our conclusions from? Upon whose authority do we get our answers from? And I want to argue today and forevermore, that we have but one authority for whom all other authorities will bow the knee, and it is Jesus. And the question from the text today that we're presented with is this, am I captured by wisdom or am I completed in Christ? Am I captured by wisdom or am I completed in Christ? The word philosophy literally means the love of wisdom. You have philo, which means love, and then sophos or sophia, which means wisdom. John MacArthur defines philosophy as the effort of man to determine ultimate causes in the universe. Now, not all philosophy is wrong, right? In reality, many great women and men have contributed, contributed their interpretations of the universe, which has aided in our understanding of God and our relationship to God. But all these interpretations perceived extra-biblically are simply that. They're, they're interpretations. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says this, 
what no eye has seen nor ear heard. So what can be studied, what can be proven, this is empiricism, what can be proven empirically, nor the heart of man imagined rationally what we can understand, what we perceive, what God has prepared for those who love him. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things, it says, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So science, the quest to prove things by formula and prove them empirically, rationalism, which um, equates to a lot of philosophy. They're not wrong in themselves, philosophy and science, but 1 Corinthians 2, 9 tells this, according to this passage, neither of these, we'll call them authorities, will ever discover all the truth. But it is when they are married to God's unchanging words, revealed and imparted by the Holy Spirit, the truth is found. I live in an older neighborhood, and if you've been to my house, then you know that um, there's a lot of large, old oak trees around. I have a pretty large one on, on our property. And um, in fact, it's kind of scary sometimes. I need to get trimmed back. The house around the corner from me used to have a really large tree. Um, and one day, I was out in my front yard, and I heard this just thundering crash. I mean, it was splitting loud. And I was like, that could either be a car wreck or a tree is broken in half. So I get on my bike and I ride around the corner and I see half of this large tree literally laying in the yard of the, my neighbor's house and then into the street. Now, it didn't appear to me before that time that the tree was dead. It wasn't very dead looking, but in reality, it had nothing feeding it and it was hollow, it was empty. Trees are only as good as their root system, correct? Authority can be viewed like this. It is only as good as its virtue. For some of you, the word authority immediately brings a picture to mind of maybe this um, authoritarian or patriarchal kind of domineering picture, and rightfully so because uh, much of history has shown it to be that way. The nature of authority has been that way throughout history. Uh, but this is a twisted version of authority. We must see that. And it's carried out by sinful men and women. But I want to submit to you today, church, that God's authority is perfect. It is perfect in its essence. It is perfect in its nature, in its function. And therefore, it is worthy of our submission to his authority. So let's look at the text here. We're, we're, we're looking at Colossians um, 2, 8 through 10 today. We're not walking through the book of Colossians. We're kind of taking a break in what we do normally, which is we would <clears throat> walk through a book of the Bible. So this is a little bit more of a topical series, but we still want to be exegetical in our approach with the text, um, which means we're not just going to use a text and kind of springboard and talk about whatever we want to do uh, with the text. But we want to see what the text has to offer us. So um, the book of Colossians was written by Paul primarily, also Timothy but Paul primarily, and it was more than likely while he was awaiting trial in Rome, and he wrote it to the, um, the church in a city called Colossae. Colossae was a city in Asia Minor in ancient times, um, and it had been a, the church there had been established by a, nan, a man named Epaphras. He came to faith during Paul's third missionary journey in Ephesus. 
And Epaphras apparently gave word to Paul that there was some false teaching or false doctrine that was threatening the church there in Colossae. And so hence why Paul's letter, uh, we have Paul's letter to the Colossians here. Now, uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 23, it really is the, the, the crux of this argument that Paul is trying to give um, here in Colossians. We're only looking at verses 8 through 10. But all the way through 23, if you read it, you'll be able to understand Paul's argument. And it is this, that there are false teachers, church. In every generation of the church, there has been, there always will be, false teachers. And therefore, there is a necessity for us to guard the faith against heresy and teaching that are contrary to God's word. This is why he says in verse 8, see to it, or beware, or watch out, that no one takes you captive. Here is it, this, the voice of the words here is an action voice, okay? Because it is going contrary, apparently, to our old man, our, our self before Christ, our flesh, that doesn't want to do something. And so Paul is saying, see to it. Do it, beware, watch out that no one takes you captive. Now, this word captive, the language here <clears throat> is, uh, can be translated in King James and other versions as spoiled, which is kind of a funny translation. See that no one spoils you. And, but what it's really saying is uh, that it's kind of the image of someone coming in in plundering and then taking you away as their spoil or their booty or their loot, right? It has to do with seduction, plundering, rapage. We don't know from the text what the false teaching was, but we do know two things about false teaching, and these are two things that are always, always true. False teaching is always given in the form of a higher knowledge. False teaching is always given in the form of a higher knowledge than, than the word of God. Said, so come away from that archaic, old nonsense and get with the program, right? This is, this is what's true for today. Let, like, why are you stuck in the past? Could this is progressive. This is new. This is right. We need to move forward. We can't be looking back. It's revealed as a higher knowledge than that of the word of God. The second thing is that the false teaching here was a convolution of truth and lie. There is no greater danger or more dangerous lie than that which is mixed with truth. There's no greater dangerous lie than that which is mixed with the truth. And this is why it is so important for you, church, to know the word. So that you may see to it. So that you may stand guard. So that you may be aware. This is the same lie that the enemy has done since the very beginning when he comes to Eve. And he said, did God really say to you that you would surely die? And she, she said, yes. When he said, you, you won't die. But you'll be like God but your eyes will be open to the knowledge, which is true. And death didn't come immediately, but death did come. The enemy twists God's words and he uses it against Eve. 
So if we know the truth, we can stand for the truth. MacArthur, John MacArthur, he says this, if you know the truth, any system of error will collapse in the face of the truth. So you don't have to know every lie out there, but you need to know the truth. Because if you know the truth, then you can say, hey, that's, that's contrary. It may come along and it may even seem great and it higher than, but you need to beware. You need to see to it that you stand guard. So I have two points for us this morning. The first is that this, all creation is under authority. All creation is under authority. This moment, all in time past, all in future coming up ahead, all creation is under an authority. There's this dangerous slide that has been around for a long time, but we can earmark it with our culture today, and it's this, that I am my own authority. I'm my own authority. This is what we would call empty deceit. Hollow, according to human tradition, and the elemental spirits of the world. It's interesting that Paul uses the language elemental there to refer to false teaching. Because false teaching's saying that the word of God's elemental, right? But he says, no, this is, this is elemental. This is rudimental. Because it's based on your natural self. It's based on a belief that you are just a rational being and that you know all things seen and unseen, but you can only know what you see. You are not a rational, autonomous person, church. No one is. No one is simply this an irrational, autonomous self. And there are devices in each of our lives that make us dependent upon someone or something at any given moment. There are just countless ways and different ways that this is true, but I'll give you two. First, concerning our rationale. Since the Enlightenment, so this kind of idea that we are a rational person comes out of the age of Enlightenment. Since that time, we've debunked it, but we still have ingrained enough this, this idea that we believe, and that's not just the church debunking it, like sociology, neurology, everything has, has said, hey, this isn't true. Okay, we're not just a rational person. But we still have ingrained in us this idea that we can just disengage from a world and just rationalize our situation and just you know, figure out exactly you know, what's going on and, and therefore it feels like we're in control of things and that I am my own authority because I, I can see what's happening here and there. But what studies have shown is that we are far more driven, not by our rationale, but by our desires and our emotions. Here's an example of that, marketing. So in marketing, there are four kinds of motivations that every, every marketing company knows. And it is your needs, your wants, your desires, and your fears. And marketing companies will use those to sell you stuff. Your needs, your wants, your desires, and your fears. And here's the truth, not only are we driven by our desires and emotions, but we are so often tricked by them. So often tricked by them. Listen to this. This is from a website. Just did a quick you know, search on this, and literally the first thing on Google, this is from their website on a marketing, um, keys to marketing website. The key to a successful marketing plan lies in matching up your buyer's strongest needs, wants, desires, and fears with your product's strongest attributes that can satisfy those motivations. Your advertising and your marketing should stimulate those motivations in the buyer's mind and then promise that your product or service will satisfy them, no matter how minor or loosely related to your product they may seem to you. 
This is directly from a keys to marketing website. So they're not trying to hide anything, right? Let me give you two illustrations, Michelin tires. Their slogan, because so much is riding on your tires. Michelin has built an entire um, business around the fear that something could happen to my family if I choose the wrong tires. And they've done this geniusly and been able to completely bypass or anybody's attention to tread ratings, right? Nobody's looking at tread ratings when they look at Michelin tires, say Michelin tires, that's the best, I'm getting it. And I'm not saying Michelin tires are bad or whatever. I wouldn't buy them just because they're too expensive and there's cheaper ones that you can get that have just as good. But, sorry, quick plug. But the fact of the matter is, we've been, we've been just kind of rused into understanding that, hey, Michelin tires, nothing's going to happen to my family, right? Here's another one, a little bit darker one, cigarettes. Cigarettes, for the longest time, all through the 1900s, have, and up to today, have used sex to sell cigarettes, and um, this started way back in the uh, 20s, where at the turn of the 20th century, before the turn of the 20th century, it was a taboo for women to smoke. And so there was this guy who was named Edward Bernays. And Edward Bernays is known as the father of public relations or the father of marketing. What he did is he took, um, he took this parade on Easter Sunday and he got women together because a cigarette company you know, hired him to do so to figure out how do we get women to smoke? We need more people to smoke. So he got women together on this parade and he gave them all packs of cigarettes and they marched in the parade and in the middle of the parade, they lift up their skirts and they pull out a cigarette packet from their garter and they smoke a cigarette defiantly as if to say, we're, we're not gonna be under the tyranny of men any longer. And they called them the torches of liberty or torches of freedom, right? And then, fr- and, and, now, here, actually, let me give you a clip here. This is Edward Bernays talking about this event in retrospect. So here's what he says about it. The interesting thing to me was that within three days, the newspapers, without any intercession on my part, published accounts that women were smoking in Union Square in San Francisco, in Union Square in Denver, and on the Boston Commons, and to my surprise, within six weeks, on their own, without any intercession on my part, the League of Theatres, which had a ban on women smoking in the smoking rooms under the orchestras of every good theater in New York, lifted the ban and women were allowed to smoke. That obviously set a trend, and uh, the Surgeon General's uh, statement that cigarettes were dangerous to your health did not come out until about 30 years later. Now, does literally no one remembers or knows the fact that it was a taboo for women to smoke before this time? He said six weeks later, the ban was lifted and women were smoking everywhere. And this, now did the cigarette company really care about women's rights in the end? 
I mean, sure, in part, maybe, but what was their motivation? To sell cigarettes, so they get more people to buy cigarettes. And since that time, they've, they've used um, countless ways, and specifically in a sexual way, uh, to be able to uh, sell cigarettes. And you can, you can go back and you can look through, um, it's really interesting, actually, um, all in Hollywood in the 70s, and like, everyone was smoking, and after a time of intimacy, like, then literally the first thing that would happen is they light up a cigarette, and they would associate in people's minds, you know, oh, cigarettes equals sex. And so they would use these subtle ways through and, and through, and, and, and literally still happens today. So that's our kind of talk about rationale, how we're not this kind of simply rational person. No, we are driven by our emotions. We're driven by our desires, right? The other thing is autonomy. Autonomy breaks down on itself as soon as we start, you know, just applying some real life scenarios to it, like learning how to speak. You can't learn how to speak on your own. It's impossible. You learning to go or going to somewhere that you've never been before. You need directions. You need someone to help you or something to help you. If you've never been there, how do you know how to get there? It's impossible. Understanding social constructs, like when is it appropriate to laugh and when is it not? You can't understand that unless you're around people, unless you have somebody to help you. You are not this rational, autonomous person that we often think we are. John Donne uh, old poet in the 1600s, he has a poem that says, no man is an island. And it begins like this, no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Every person here today, Christian, non-Christian, you are so much more than you think you are. You are made of a beautiful composite of intellect and emotion, cells and genes, nerves and molecules, spirit, mind and body, thoughts, a soul, experiences, needs and wants and desires, and so much more. And these are guided by some authority. All these are guided by some authority that they submit themselves to. All of you, not everyone here, but all of you as a person, all of you is in submission to something or someone. You can no more choose to be out from authority than you can choose to stop, to stop the sun from setting this evening. And because you cannot choose to be out from authority, your choice is this, whose authority will you be under? Whose authority will you be under? The question that's posed in the text from Paul is, are you captured by wisdom or are you completed in Christ? Who will be your guide? Is it the limited wisdom of the world? Or is it Jesus who is wisdom? Who has extended to you everything that you need for life? You see, Satan's main occupation is this. I told you a few, a few sermons back when I preached his main occupation, Satan's main occupation, is to devalue God's trustworthiness as a supreme authority. Can you trust God? Is he trustworthy? Can you submit your life to him? And the enemy will choose over and over again to come up with ways to make you disbelieve that you can. But Jesus' authority is trustworthy. And our point number two is this, that all authority 
whether we believe it's, he's trustworthy or not, all authority, whether that authority submits to Jesus or not, all authority under heaven and earth bends the knee to King Jesus. All authority. Our passage screams today that Jesus is holding supreme authority over everything. He says he is the head of all rule and authority. At the end of November, we read in a passage at the end of Matthew, of the um, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, and it concludes this way. It says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Matthew 28, 18, as, Matt, as Jesus is sending out his disciples, he says, all authority has been given to me. Who gave Jesus authority? Go ahead, you can answer. The Father. The Father did. Matthew eleven twenty seven. all things have been handed over to me by my Father. John three thirty five. the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. John 13, 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things, into, all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he knelt down and washed the disciples' feet. That's amazing. That's amazing. Jesus had all authority given by the Father. But did Jesus not have authority before he was the son or before he was incarnated? Before the father gave it to him? Jesus has always had authority. And this is interesting because actually my family, we're, we just went through this this week and we're continuing to in a catechism that we go through. Um, so it's interesting that came up in, in the passage today, but um, that Jesus has always had authority. He has always had authority, but now, as the God-man, God made flesh, Jesus receives his authority over sin and death. Completing what the Father has sent him to do, perfect submission and obedience to the Father in a sacrificial atonement on the cross. Colossians 1.16, if you just look back a little bit, it tells us that all things were created by him, through him, and for him. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We know that when it says the word here, it's referring to Jesus. So Jesus has always had authority, but now in Jesus' perfect submission, coming to earth, putting on flesh, submitting to God the Father, going to the cross of Calvary, dying in our stead, rising again, says that he's been given authority over all things, including sin and death. Why is this good news? Why is this good news? Because Ephesians 2 tells us, church, that we, apart from Christ, are dead in our sins. We are following the course of the world to the spirit of the air. There is a spirit that is now at work in the world. There is. Now we can choose to just discount it and carry on in our rational minds and say, well, I just don't really see that. I don't understand that. But we must know, or you must not leave today without hearing me say, at least, that there is one. The enemy is real, his name is Satan, and he's trying to destroy you. The way that he will do this is by convincing you that you are not under authority. When you think that you don't have dispositions, 
towards certain people or cultures or races or ethnicities or genders. You do. You think that you have the ability to keep an unbiased opinion towards a political matter, but you can't. You want to believe that you can determine what comes into mind, but let me tell you, unless you are seeing to it that you are taking captive every thought by the word of God, you are failing. A boat moving upstream, a boat not moving upstream is moving down with the current. And unless you are fighting, unless you are standing guard, you are losing the battle. That's the fact of the matter. Because there is a war that is happening and it is over your mind, it is over your emotions, it is over all of you. It does not come down to just simply you being an autonomous, rational person that somehow you arrive one day and you figured it out and nothing can affect you. You are affected every single moment of your day by some outside influence. And so how are you combating that? How are you standing guard? How are you seeing to it that you will not be moved? You are in bondage to your nature, to your desires and your fears and to your sin. But here's the good news. Colossians 2.15, if we just go down a few verses here, it says that he, Jesus, has disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is what Jesus has accomplished for you and I. So we don't have to live under any kind of fear. We don't have to worry about what we're driven to do or not driven to do. No, we can stand guard and stand firm in our faith as we apply the word of God to our lives. This is where verse nine in our text finds its real weight for us. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells, what? Bodily. Christ's incarnation The whole fullness of deity of God dwells in Christ bodily. It's his incarnation, his death, and his resurrection that frees his people from the condemnation of their sins and which gives Jesus this authority. Hear this in John 10, 27 through 30. He says these words. Who else with authority could say this? My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is the authority that Christ has. If you are complete in Christ, you have an authority that is over you, that stands above every other one, including death itself. Nothing will snatch you out of his hand. For I am convinced of this, Paul says, that neither death nor life, nor rulers, nor authorities, nor present, nor future, anything else in this world can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. For there is no authority that supersedes Jesus. He is the one in Revelation 1a that says, I am the Alpha and the Omega says the Lord God, who is, who was to come, who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. And you, verse 10, you have been filled with him. You have been filled with him. The emphasis on him. You've been filled, but not just filled with anything or anyone, but you've been filled with him, the Lord God Almighty, the one who has no beginning, no end, the infinite and eternal son of God. You, Christian, 
who have put your faith and trust in him. And one day he will return. One day he will return and he will gather all of his people together. And the Bible tells us that we will reign with him in a new creation, with glorified bodies, with new minds, with new hearts, with new understanding. We will not just be able to see in our darkened imagination or our darkened reality, but we will be able to see clearly. We will be able to know him as he knows us. That is good news. But what about between now and then? How is God exercising his authority in this dispensation of Christ's first coming and his second coming, how is God exercising his authority right now? The answer to that is what the Protestant church after the Reformation gave us and is this sola scriptura, which in Latin means by scripture alone. Now this is a lengthy explanation of this, but it's so good, it's so meaty, so I wanna give it to us and we'll read through it. Sam Hamstra pastor, theologian, he says this, the Bible is the written word of God pointing beyond itself to the absolute authority. Hear that? The written word of God pointing beyond itself to the absolute authority, the living and the transcendent word of God. God exercises authority over the church through the scriptures, which impart authoritative truth. The Bible issues definitive directives. It offers an authoritative norm by which all doctrine and principles must be shaped for both individual believers and the church. The Bible is a record and an explanation of divine revelation that is both complete, sufficient, or comprehensible, perspicuous, which is just, I don't even know why it adds it in there, it's just a confusing word. That is to say, it contains all the church needs to know in this world for its guidance in the way of salvation and service. It contains all the church needs to know for its guidance and salvation. Now, this does not mean that we cannot find truth outside of the word of God, but if it comes in contradiction to the word of God, then we stand guard against it. God's authoritative truth to us. This is why we gather here week to week in a small gym to sit under the word of God, to hear it preached to us, to come under submission to the word of God declared to us, not under my submission or anyone who's preaching it, but the, the word of God's authority that this is a living and active word that is speaking to us. God is speaking to us through it. This is why we gather in our homes and coffee shops and over lunch and dinners to be held accountable to the word of God, to encourage one another with the word of God, as Hebrews tells us to. 3.13, that, that we might encourage one another, that we might not be deceived, Right? Man's wisdom is hollow, like a tree that doesn't have good root system. It'll fall over. It will one day. We need something substantive. We need something lasting. We need something to pierce through our broken nature and shed much needed light into a dark world. I don't know about you guys, but man, I am confused often. I find myself in a place of confusion of like, man, God, like, how do we move forward? with all these different opinions and objectives by people. And, and, and hear me, church, that you know, the false teaching here may come from within the church. It certainly will. It'll also come from without, outside the church. So how do we, as a church, be faithful to the word of God, stand firm, and move forward in a culture that is changing every single day? 
And there will be pressure. Believe it, there will be pressure. How do we do this? It comes through the authoritative word of God. This cannot be overemphasized. The fact is that no matter how much we hear this, no matter how much we hear the truth, the good news of the gospel, we forget and we are led astray because we are prone to wander. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. What an honest sentence that I'm prone to leave the very God that I know I love. I love you, but I'm prone to leave you. Can you be honest with yourself about that? That your keeping to this does not come down to just some kind of something you can muster up inside of yourself. But it comes through repentance and acknowledgement, stepping back and seeing my shortcomings, where I'm susceptible, what are the truths that I'm susceptible to believe that are contrary to the word of God, and I deny those things. I walk in repentance and I come back to the truth. What is your need, your want, and your fear? When we examine these things in our lives, we get a better understanding of the things that really have authority in our hearts. What do you want? What do you need? What are you fearful of? Psalm 139, 23 through 24 says, Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. The world takes these desires of yours and plays to them. It leaves your needs unmet. It leaves your wants just taunted and your fears exasperated. But Jesus... Jesus stands in contrast to that because Jesus says, there is no need I will not fill. No want I cannot satisfy. No fear that I cannot undo. As we continue in this series the next few weeks, there will be things that maybe, you know, things we talk about that make you uncomfortable, make you uh, feel a little uneasy. There may be things that even excite you or make you angry, but that's the whole point. It's, contradict, or it's uh, um, controversial. This is controversial in our world today. So what we must do is this. It's important that we walk through them together, that we align ourselves with the authority of Scripture. And we do this in an honest way, Right? We be, we're honest with ourselves. We're honest about realities around us. But we do it in line with the scripture. Not our own presuppositions, opinions, or our feelings. And this, we want to do this partly because we, uh, we need to address some things as a church and say, here's where we stand on. But also partly because we need you, church, to be equipped for the work of ministry in the world that you live in. That you are not captive to empty deceit and philosophy, but you are standing firm in the word of God. So, question that I want you to take with you today is this. What will trusting in God's word and the authoritative of God's word, authority of God's word, look like for you in 2020? What would that look like for you? Let me suggest just two things for you. 
And maybe, maybe you need to start here. Maybe you're already doing this, and that's great. Continue in on these things. But very basically, if you're not doing these two things, please apply them to your life this year. Find a reading plan of God's word. Find a plan to read God's word. Something that's gonna hold you accountable to what you are reading that day. We have a great one on our website. If you go to crosspointdowntown.com and you go to resources and you can find daily reading plan. This was put together by Micah Slankard and many of you know him and he adapted it from another guy. I think it was Michael Horton. And, uh, and it's a great plan. It has three tiers in it. You go through Old Testament, Psalms, and then the Gospels. No, sorry, Old Testament Gospels and the Epistles. And you, and you do them uh, um, in, a, in a great, easy way. But find a plan to read through the word of God. I know how tedious it can be sometimes, especially when you're getting through like, you know, Leviticus and Numbers, right? And even parts of Deuteronomy. Man, it can feel just tedious. But push through it, church. Know the word of God. Submit yourself to it. Trust that God is using it to shape you and form you. The second thing is this. Find a community. If you're not part of a community group, get in a community group. Be a part with other believers on how to study the word of God together, how to apply it to each other's lives, how to hold each other accountable to the word of God. If you have no one holding you accountable, then, then how will you ever follow what the Bible commands you to do? Psalm 1, 1 through 3 says this, blessed is the man who walks in the counsel, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. On this, on his law, he meditates day and night. Hear this. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. He, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on it day and night, he is like a tree planted by streams of water and yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. It's the promise of God here. As water gives life to a tree, so the word of God does to the soul. May we be like a tree planted by water, immovable under the authority of scripture. We're gonna sing this song that is simply a prayer. It's an acknowledgement as well. The verses start, I need you to soften my heart. I need you to break me apart. I need you to open my eyes to see that you're shaping my life. I need you to soften my heart, break me apart. I need you to pierce through the dark, cleanse every part of me. And then it's a surrender, all I am, I surrender. I'm gonna invite you to stand. We're gonna sing this together. I'm gonna grab my guitar. And as we're doing this, I want you to, to think through that question that I gave you. What is 2020 gonna look like for you in a new way? to be able to follow and submit yourself to God's rule and authority.